Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 73 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 73, Scott and I are going to be continuing uh, and maybe even getting through our complete list of the worst quizzing practices. So this represents part three of hopefully three. We'll see if we can get through everything. Uh, This is where Scott and I will be taking umbrage or uh, stealing a certain amount of umbrage for the practices that we think that exist in quizzing, in particular CMA quizzing, maybe even P&W quizzing, uh, that we take umbrage with on some scale between, say, 1 and 10, where 1 is, eh, it's not really that big a deal, and 10, we are basically apoplectically taking umbrage in great quantities and so forth. So with that said, we'll just kind of jump in because we've got some juicy, or for some definition, juicy topics to talk about in our hopefully last episode of umbrage taking, at least for a while. And first up is sort of... um. It's kind of a wide topic, and uh, we may actually disagree with even whether umbrage should be taken for some of these things. So it'll be kind of an interesting thing to dissect and discuss. Uh, But this is in the sort of the zone. It's sort of an umbrella topic of several different things uh, where you're talking about quiz equipment, quiz software, quiz data, material providers, anything along that sort of sort of the utilitarian aspects of quizzing. And the first of these sort of two areas that involve this larger umbrella is the idea of taking profit to either cover expenses or taking profit to make large amounts of profit or something along those lines. And Scott and I have, I think we've talked about this on a podcast in the distant past, haven't we? We have, yes. Yeah, a little bit. Um But it's this idea around whether profit is okay. And I want to tr- sort of try to introduce this topic and be sort of fair uh, to to both Scott and my positions, which are, I think, a little bit different here. But there's the idea of taking any profit for equipment, software, data, material, whatever it happens to be related to quizzing. And then there's the idea of taking, for lack of a better term, let's call it very subjectively obscene profit uh, to cover, you know, way more than just, you know, expenses and unexpected, uh, expenses and so forth. And so what does obscene profit mean? Well, when you're charging something that's like, I don't know, again, subjective here, but 2x, 3x, 4x, 10x, what it costs to actually produce. And you're, and it's something that's very specifically for, you know, quizzing that starts to get a little bit you know, problematic, right? So clearly, neither Scott nor I are sort of anti-Zondervanites, if that is a word. And if not, then I just made it up. And $5 if anybody else wants to use it for licensing fees. But anybody who is an anti-Zondervanite would be against the Zondervan Publishing Company for charging money sufficient to make a profit off the sales of NIV Bibles, which of course, you know, I'm not against because, you know, they have to come up with a lot of capital to pay translators. They have to maintain the translation. They come up with a Bible that is in a fairly good, reliable, long state, you know, of of, of high quality that people are saying like, yes, I want to buy this copy of the Bible by charging 
the maybe higher than cost for these Bibles. They are not preventing anyone access to Bibles and so on and so forth, right? They're not harming Christendom by, uh, you know, uh, making a little profit, which they then in turn reinvest into further translational updates, producing more copies of the Bible at cheaper cost, uh, you know, and, and that sort of thing, right? I'm not really talking about that. Um, what I'm talking about in the part where I take umbrage and maybe Scott does, or maybe Scott doesn't, we'll, we'll, we'll see here, but are the times where equipment, software, data, or material related to quizzing, and of course only related to quizzing, it doesn't really have cross-applicational purposes, where that stuff is largely ridiculously priced. And I'll give you one example, and this is sort of where this was really the... I don't know, the catalyst, the inspiration for why I started developing quizzing software, I don't know, way back in like 1995, 1996 or something like that. The, and the, the reason was back in 95, uh, there were, you, you would, if you were a coach, you would buy, let's say, reference material, which was essentially nothing more than like if you're in CBQZ and you look up a, a reference and you have that color coding that was there. That was basically it. Only it wasn't all these extra words. It was really only uh, like unique words, global unique words that were bolded. Uh, they, I think it maybe it had a list of two word key phrases or something printed as a, as a, as a concordance or something like that. But you could buy this, you know, however many pages it was, you could buy a photocopy for $20, which back then, you know, $20 in 1995 dollars was a lot of money. So imagine, you know, I don't know exactly what the rate would be now, but imagine spending say $40 for something that you could easily photocopy at your local library for far less than that. Well, you know, that, that kind of annoyed me because I was like, that, that just seems weird. Why aren't we, uh, you know, making that a little bit cheaper, but I was like, okay, fine. So I bought a copy of it. And I noticed there was a copyright symbol at the bottom of every page. So I, or at the bottom of the title page anyway. So I asked, well, can I make a photocopy of this for my other coach, uh, who in the, uh, the, the, the church that, that I was coaching. And the answer was no, the information is, is copyrighted. You have to pay another twenty dollars uh, $20 for another copy. And this kind of rubbed me the wrong way because I was thinking to myself, well, well now wait a minute. It's one thing to charge some money to make back your expenses, maybe to make back a little bit more than your expenses to cover unexpected costs or whatever else. But when you're basically saying, no, you can't make a photocopy of this, you have to pay me for it, that kind of raised a little bit of a red flag in my mind. So I, I was like, well, I'm going to go ahead and produce a free version of this. And so I wrote some software that that you know, ran through the material and looked up or figured out what were unique words and unique phrases and, and uh, chapter keywords and so forth, and then produced a free version of this material that you could download for free. You could then print out and it was, you know, cost you however much it cost you for, you know, printer, paper and toner or whatever ribbon or whatever it happened to be back in 1995 or 96 or whatever it was. And I thought, great. And, you know, if, if somebody wants to spend the $20, they can, if they want the free version, they can, if they want to print out the free version, they can, this is great. But then the original author, the original creator of the reference material complained that what I was doing was bad because it was hurting his profits and his profits were funding his retirement. And so I take umbrage with that personally. My umbrage is not particularly huge, um, but, you know, it seems kind of, I don't know, 
not exactly above board. It seems kind of cheeseball, I guess, for lack of a better term. Uh, and so I, for me, I'd call it a numbers level of about a four. But, but before I go too much further down here, Scott, jump in here. What were you, what are your thoughts on this? Do you disagree with me? What's your what's your take on this one? Yeah. So my background is I have a my degree from college is in economics and I am generally very free market um, in favor. And so in a case like this, I'm in favor of charging of someone charging whatever the market will bear. And I am also in favor of someone like yourself coming in and undercutting um, the existing players in a market because you can provide it for far cheaper and far cheaper in this case being zero. Um, did you say that it was being sold for $20? I think I, I I vaguely recall that, and and this is like you know 1995 memory. So who knows if I'm right? Sure, but anyway, that would using the consumer price index, that would be thirty three dollars and ninety eight cents, twenty twenty July dollars. Okay, um, and so definitely like that's a chunk of change for a digital thing that um, might have taken some time to produce the first time, but then in subsequent years and subsequent copies takes zero amount of time, right? Um, and so I'm, I'm fine in general with someone charging whatever the market will bear, but I'm also fine with, um, people coming in and providing the same or better product for the same or better price. Now that said, I think that, um, some may either assume or wish that people who are religious would have some sort of higher standard, um, for maybe not charging the maximum that the market would bear, which I don't know, I might lump this into, um, the same category of like people who think that if you're religious, you shouldn't do things like challenge or have disagreements. And I, I don't think that that's a, necessarily a fair assumption just because someone is a Christian or of any religion. Right. Um, I don't consider these actions to be, um, like morally poor necessarily. Now, if you are like hostile to better products or knowingly providing a bad product, but no one else has any options. Well, I mean, it kind of clearly demonstrates that you don't really care about Bible quizzing, right? You only care about the money. And I don't know. I, I mean, I don't want to say that no one is like, you're not allowed to do that, but it just shows like who you are. You care more about money than Bible quizzing. And now we all know that. <laughs> um, and so, um, I don't know. I, I take it generally pretty hands-off approach to these things. And I don't want to cast judgment of like, oh, you shouldn't be charging that much because if people are willing to pay, then I think that it's fine that you're charging it. But if you get hostile to competitors or um, just kind of provide a bad product, then I think it says something about you. Yeah. And, and to be, you know, totally honest here, or uh, no, that's not the word I'm looking for. Although I'm, I am trying to be totally honest, but they're, they're, full disclosure, that's, that's the phrase I'm looking for. Full disclosure wise, I don't have an economics degree, but I am also very much in favor of, you know, free market, a true, as long as it's truly free market capitalism, I'm very much in favor of it, not like crony capitalism or, you know, protectionist capitalism or anything like that. For the, for, of those things, I take supreme umbrage and do not like for lots of reasons that are way beyond the scope of this podcast. But when it comes to truly a free market sort of capitalist uh, economic system, I mean, it's, I think it's the only system that generally works over the long term, like on a, you know, a hundred year scope or greater. Um, and I think it's a, a, an amazingly fair and, and reasonable system. And so, you know, I'm, I'm really torn here because on one hand, like, I totally agree with you, Scott, like, like, yeah, like produce, 
whatever product at whatever price the market will bear. And then maybe that will spur somebody else on to produce a better product. And, and I, I, I totally get that. Right. And I'm, I'm totally in favor of that. I think where I, my umbrage level rises above zero is, is a couple of things. One, this is a very, very limited, tiny market, right? With a very limited number of people who would even bother to invest time and effort into maximizing something, which again, I get, you know, economic theory means because it's a limited uh, investment market, the price for any particular commodity therein is going to be higher. Uh, forget mm -hmm. commodity for any given thing is going to be higher because of the, the limited scope of the market. I So yeah, I totally get that. Um, but for me, there is something that comes into play in terms of the fact that like, like this is a Christian ministry. Um, and it, I don't know, it just kind of, it kind of bothers me a bit. It's almost like if you've got, you know, you go to church, you've got your local church, you go to your church and every Sunday, the senior pastor gets up there and, per, you know, produces and pre prepares, produces, delivers a sermon, right? And he or she delivers, you know, insight and prayerful consideration, meditation and so forth, pours their heart and soul out into this, into this uh, sermon. And if you're there uh, in a pew or in a chair, whatever, uh, you hear and experience this thing and you are enriched by, you know, ex the experience of hearing that sermon, hearing the wisdom that the, the pastor is, is providing through the wisdom of scripture and so forth, the illumination of, of scripture and so forth. But then there's a sound tech in the back who's recording the sermon and then taking that sermon and like selling it online for a hundred dollars a sermon. Like to me, that seems really questionable right now. I mean, if the market will bear it, right. If there's like two or three or five people who are like, yeah, I, the sermons are really, really good. I I'm willing to spend a hundred dollars a week to listen to a sermon that I missed because I couldn't physically be, you know, in the congregation, you know, the free market ec economist in me is kind of like, well, okay, but like the Christian in me is going, but they don't need to do this. They could produce it for free and so much more Christendom would be enhanced as a result. And, and thus my umbrage level goes beyond zero. Does that make sense? Sure. And maybe it's a weird line that I'm drawing, but I don't want to pass judgment on the action, but the action, um, provides me a lot of evidence of the type of person that you are. Yeah. Yeah. And I totally get that. And, and I agree with you. Uh, in that regard. So let's expand the scope. You know, we've been talking about uh, the, the, the data, the material, right? So let's talk about like, let's say that let's talk about, you know, conflicts of interest to some degree. So it's one thing to say that I produce software that creates reference material. And instead of giving it away, I'm going to charge for access either to the data or the software or both or whatever. Right. Um, and there's a set price and, and, and so forth. But let's say you, Scott, are on a committee that decides where the Pacific Northwest Bible Quizzing District Championships is going to be hosted. And you also are, sit on the board of a uh, Christian camp or a hotel. And you're like, hey, you know what? Um, I can convince quizzing to be hosted in the facility that I sit on the board of. And that benefits that facility. Uh, how do you feel about that as a conflict of interest? And, and where does your umbrage level uh, rise or fall relative to that versus, you know, because the facility is going to be charging a certain amount to cover cost at a minimum and probably going to be charging more than that for some level of profit. Uh, how do you feel about that? 
Um, so I think that the mere fact that conflicts of interest exist, um, I at the very least, well, maybe at the very most, it does not worry me. Um, but that's more out of, hmm, I don't want to label it as pragmatism because then if you disagree, I'm saying that you're not pragmatic, which I'm not I'm not meaning to say. But I think that in the quizzing community, if you look at people that have access to hosting venues for meets and people that um, will write quizzing software and people that will write quiz questions and people that will run districts, there's going to be a massive amount of overlap between people that are motivated and have the ability to do those things. And so I think that conflicts of interests are just kind of the name of the game, right? Um, but I think where you run into problems or where um, I would raise my umbrage level, because I think my umbrage level with just conflicts of interest existing would be zero or maybe a half of a point. But where you run into problems and where my umbrage level would rise is when people are not clear um, about the fact that those conflicts of interest exist, right? So if, for example, someone was in charge of the question set for internationals and was also the head coach of an internationals team, I wouldn't off the bat say this should not be allowed ever. Because I think that the people fulfilling those roles are going to have a lot of overlap and um, you want the best person for the jobs. And I, don't, I wouldn't want to dictate too much there. But if the person who's in, who's in charge of that question set is not being clear about the controls they are putting in place to make sure that um, their district does not have an undue advantage, I would start to worry, right? Um, I don't think the opportunity for a conflict of interest is a bad thing, but not being clear about uh, that it exists and what you're doing to mitigate it is bad. I mean, um, there was a case where the chair of Life Impact Ministries who picked the international's um, site um, was also on the board of a camp that hosted internationals, I think, three times out of five years. And pretty much everyone that went said it was terrible. And when I asked for financial information about what the camp was charging Life Impact Ministries, who then gets to set the international's fees, I was given the runaround, and it was not giving given information. And that kind of thing raises a lot of worries. Whereas I don't think there should be any prohibition against being hosted at a camp that someone's on the board on, but you should have to disclose what the you know financial agreement is there to see if there's some sort of sweetheart deal or other thing happening um, that is not in the best interest of Bible quizzing, right? Yeah, and, and so, I, I completely agree with everything you said, right? Like, I, I mean, it's it's... Conflicts of interest are going to happen. I think it's really more the transparency about the fact that they exist. Number one, I think that's the biggest thing, right? Like if, if there's a unintentional non-transparency, I'm like, okay, my umbrage level is pretty low, probably zero even. Um, but if there's, if there's like an obvious intentional, I'm not going to be transparent about this conflict of interest. And then on top of it, when somebody's like, hey, I've got some questions, I'd, I'd like to get some data, you know, about this thing that might be a conflict of interest, to not then immediately have massive transparency as a result of the request is a skyrocketing of the umbrage level, in my opinion. Absolutely. There were years that PNW hosted Great West back in the early 2010s. And um, I was in charge of the questions because I was helping run the meet. And so I asked CMD and Western Canada, can I have your district's question sets? And then I combined the three of them, and then I worked to make sure that there was um, a large expanded keyverse list as the basis for finishing quote questions um, that did not reflect PNW's list, you know? Um, and then I, when I generated question sets, I sealed them into envelopes. And this wasn't because CMD or West Can 
indicated that they distrusted me. I just knew that like I was in charge of this very important part of the competition and I wanted to make it exceedingly clear to them that it was completely fair and equal and no district's style of question writing was reflected in greater you know, proportion than anyone else's um, because I think that that's really important for the competition that no one questions it, right? Right. Um, and, it, and it's, I mean, on the face of it, sure, one person from a competing district has absolute authority to dictate the question sets, right? I could have done whatever the heck I wanted and no one would have really been the wiser, right? But I knew that those potential conflicts of interest existed. And so I largely disclosed everything and said, hey, I want to combine all the question sets of the three districts. Um, I want to seal the envelopes and all this stuff because um, I thought that that was important. And um, I think you're going to find that across, you know, um, in all kinds of functions. I mean, I get, we're on question writing now, and I know that multiple people have been in charge of questions at the international level, like Lana and Georgia and Heather. And, you know, they've always had things in place that, you know, made sure that multiple question writers are participating and multiple question editors and um, the questions are sealed. And, you know, like there wasn't like no one had any um, any reason to think anything untoward was happening because there was clear communication. Right. Right. But let's say there wasn't clear communication, not because somebody was trying to hide anything, but just because nobody thought to be particularly transparent about it. Right. Like somebody is just like head down, going to try to get the job done and it never dawns on them to be more transparent than they are. I mean, my umbrage level with that is pretty low so long as if and when somebody then asks for transparency, it's immediately given, right? Or, or you know, reasonably immediately given, right? The idea of saying like, you know, I'm, I've got my head down. I'm not even thinking. I'm not even realizing there's a conflict of interest. I'm just, I'm trying to get my work done. And then Scott comes along and says, hey, Griffin, I kind of want to know a little bit more about how you did X or how x was done you know if if not by you by the people that you de delegated what was the or the what was the process you know what was the how did this happen you know kind of stuff and you're 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 you know inquiring to to learn of some some information at that point it's like it's on it's incumbent upon me to be very transparent with you and tell you the answers that you need like why would i hide that from you and for me to then say no, I don't want to tell you the information and to kind of give, you know, send you on a wild goose chase. That's just silly. That like it, that almost is, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. That almost indicates that there is something that I'm trying to hide. Absolutely. Right. So um, when I became PNW's district coordinator, I was, um, let's see here, 26 years old. I was pretty young and I hadn't led a lot of stuff. And I remember it was pretty early in my time that um, one of the other participating adults gave me a great piece of advice and it wasn't like a chastisement at all, but it was just an exhortation, which was in the absence of information, rumor fills the void. Um, and I, I saw how true that was, right? It's like people um, will, will default to um, thinking bad things or being distrustful if they are not provided information that they think that they should have. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. um, in your example, like, like when I talked about at least the three question writers, like I had no assumptions or observations of impropriety. So I never asked for further information. But at the point that I asked, if I did ask for further information, I would either appreciate an answer or, if they didn't feel like they should be giving me an answer for whatever reason, um, 
just shoot off an email to the CQLT or all the district coordinators or something with me in copy and just say like, Scott Peterson asked this question and we don't feel like we should be giving this, you know, an answer or at least not an answer specifically to him. You know, like, like anything about that is like fine because you're actively not hiding it. Right. You're like being, you're willing to have that conversation, even if you don't think the answer should be given for whatever reason. Right. Exactly. So like if there's, if there's something, you know, as a district coordinator, let's say there is a personal conflict between, um, this is totally hypothetical, hypothetical, but let's say, you know, you're a district coordinator, there's a conflict between two people at a meet, you go and try to resolve that conflict between the three of you, you know, the district coordinator is the mediator, uh, you figure out some sort of resolution to that one way or the other. Somebody comes along later and says, hey, I want to know information about what happened. You might say, you know, look, I, I think that's, it's a conf, I, I, I believe that's a confidential situation. I don't really want to share that with anybody, but you can then turn around and be utterly transparent with everybody, uh, in this, in the sense of saying something happened and I believe it is inappropriate for me to tell you more, you know, that kind of thing. And, and maybe list out your reasons or something. Right. So, I mean, this is, we're not talking about like hundred percent transparency in all things for everybody at all times. That's not really where the umbrage comes from. It's the sort of the covering up. It's, it's the sense of covering up a crime almost, even though I'm not, I'm not suggesting there is one, but I'm not, I'm not using words appropriately here, but yeah. Yeah. Like there was a time in PW when we had to remove someone from a role, but it was like, we weren't setting some precedent, right? And we weren't, um, it wasn't needed to be like a specific lesson to everyone. It was just an issue that we were um, addressing by removing someone from a role. And so we just announced that this person wasn't going to be filling this role, but it wasn't necessary to go into the specifics of why. Like it wasn't a teaching moment for the rest of the district. We weren't setting precedent and I definitely had no need to air anything personal, right? Um, I didn't feel like that was appropriate. Um, but I would be happy to talk to someone if they wanted to speak to me more about it. I would probably still withhold a decent amount of information because I don't see the need to, you know, um, but just speaking about, you know, um, being clear about what happened and, um, what you think is important for someone to know and, um, being clear that you're not hiding anything, I think is really important for the health of any organization. Yeah, indeed. Well, let's move on kind of in the same umbrella with equipment um, and software and so forth. But how would you respond to somebody who is providing equipment or software who then provides terrible quality equipment and or software? So basically hardware or software and or terrible technical support. Yeah. So, I mean, I've I've purchased a good amount of equipment and um, definitely had a really poor experience buying benches from not the current proprietors of the benches business, um, but the previous, and um, bought quiz pad and console and USB interface equipment that was just of not a very high quality and didn't receive good support. And I think for these sorts of things, I'd be interested in your thoughts, Griffin, because um, I imagine that it's a small market. I imagine um, that the amount of profit is not amazing, right? Like it could be that I would guess that it is no one's income, like sole income, right? Um, and it could be that initially they went into the business of quiz software and equipment because they were very passionate about Bible quizzing and saw an opportunity to use their expertise to provide something worthwhile. And over time, as you get more in that business owner sense, um, profits and longevity took a lot more of a hold. Um, 
and um, kind of organically moved away from providing the best products for good prices because you are passionate about the program and the mission, but are now just kind of a business owner, you know? Right. Like, I kind of wonder if that has happened um, because, I mean, I've I've gotten some pretty terrible products for ridiculous margin prices because there aren't alternatives and gotten terrible support. And I'm just like, I mean, these are kind of my only options, so it sucks. But, um, I mean, this is an awful product that just exists because there's not a larger market for this kind of thing, you know? And I was, I, it just made me, it made me sad. Uh, but I don't, I don't know if the person, like, set out with the intent to make as much money possible providing a shoddy product. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think, I don't, I'm, I'm not ascribing a actively negative motive to somebody like that. I think it's more a passively negative motive, right? Like somebody provides a quizzing product, charges what I consider to be too much money, which is, you know, profit. Um, I just, I don't know. I, I, I keep going back to the whole, like, it's a ministry, right? It's either a ministry or it's a business, right? And if you're a sound tech in a church and you're, you know, charging money to access the, the, the senior pastor's sermons, like it's a business. It's not, it's not a ministry. And, and that I, I, I have some level of non-zero umbrage as a result of that, but like, you know, that point aside, if I'm producing or if somebody's producing physical equipment, right, and the physical equipment is not very good from a non-ministry perspective, you can say, well, but that's just economics, right? Um, there's, you know, it's a very limited market. There's not a lot of competition, which means the product quality is going to be low. The pricing is going to be high. And the only way to fix that is to have a market be bigger, which will then draw in competitors, which will then drive down costs and drive up quality, right? Um, you know, this basic, basic economics and, you know, it works every time it's tried and yay, right? And quizzing will never be that, right? Like quizzing, as much as we will evangelize quizzing and as much as we will try to grow and hopefully succeed in growing quizzing, you know, everywhere uh, for everybody, quizzing is always going to be on the fringe, right? I and mean, as much as we love to imagine ESPN 8, you know, televising internationals live or something like that with commentators and so forth and that would be really cool. And that totally needs to happen. And I'm going to totally write an email to ESPN right after we're, we're done recording here. But realistically, that's not going to happen. Quizzing is always going to be on the fringe. Therefore, quality will be low unless somebody is personally motivated to have high quality. And pricing will be high unless somebody is personally motivated to have pricing be low or zero, right? Um, and so to me, I, I kind of I lump this together. It's sort of like if you're going to bother providing a product at all, stand by your product, right? Um, and so for me, I call this like an umbrage level of kind of like a four. But then there are these scenarios where it's sort of like there's the general case of terrible quality and the general case of high cost. But then there are specific examples, right? So let's say, I, you know, I produce CBQZ. I produce it for free. But let's say instead of producing it for free, I charge... 20 bucks a year to as, as a you know access license or something and somebody had a problem with with like cbqz they they had trouble you know generating a quiz or something or or they discovered a bug or something so i can respond by saying yeah that's not good let's let's work together and figure out how to figure out a solution and and make you happy again or i can give you the runaround right 
Um, or I can charge you a support fee like, okay, well, I'm going to charge you an additional $40 to fix this bug or something like that. Right. That's just like, that's nasty. And I mean, economically, sure, I can totally do that, but it certainly reveals something of my character that I wouldn't stand behind my product, even if I'm charging you $20 a year to, to use it. And so for like, for me, like CBQZ, I, I, I mean, a lot of CBQZ I threw together, right? Um, I mean, it was originally just some software that I use for myself and it just kind of spiraled, you know, pretty much out of control into something to where it is today. And that's why I'm trying to replace it with QuizSage. Um, so there's a little bit better. There's, there's bugs all over the place with CBQZ. And there were certainly a lot more bugs, you know, two or three years ago when we were actively adding features and fixing bugs and changing things along the way. If somebody discovers a bug um, and it's a serious bug and they're having problems, like, I feel like I have to stand by my work. I may be, I may have to say to them, like, I think this is an edge case. Uh, you know, the product is free. I, I don't have a lot of time to devote to this. I think that's fair, but to not, to just, you know, give somebody a runaround seems kind of ridiculous. So like, you know, if somebody's producing equipment, charging you a premium for that equipment, charging you fairly significant, you know, shipping costs, and then vanishes, doesn't return, you know, respond, it doesn't respond to email. Uh, when they do respond to email is giving you, you know, terrible, terrible support, blaming you for the failure, as opposed to saying, you know, let's, let's see if we can figure this out together. Like to me, that just seems really cheese ball. And I, I put it kind of with the same umbrage stuff of the, you know, photocopy, not being allowed to photocopy, you know, printed pages. Sure. Um, I think that wanting providing quiz software and equipment to be classified as a ministry is very wishful. Um, it is. I, I kind of think of the, um, commercials like, uh, I'm an Apple, Apple iPhone user. And so the commercial iOS App market is very much a race to the bottom where if the app's not free or 99 cents one time, the user is um, very unwilling to purchase it and will demand lifetime updates for no additional costs. And just things like if you care about this app and use it and find value from it, you want it to be paid so that it is worthwhile to be um, provided on a continuing basis. And I feel similarly about quiz equipment because I can't imagine the money's crazy and I want it to be treated like a business so that it continues to exist. Um, but I do think you are right that once something is treated like a business, you have committed yourself to a level of quality and a level of support. Um, see, I don't know if I agree. Like, I don't, I don't agree that there's a race to the bottom, right? Like, the motivation is not profit. The The motivation is the ministry, right? So like I produce CBQZ, eventually QuizSage, right? The, I, and I, I don't want to like put myself as the only example. Other people produce quality uh, physical equipment, quality software, quality reference materials, right? And they're not charging, well, some are charging for, you know, revenue so that they can pay expenses. Some are charging a little bit more so they can make profit. There's others that are like me that aren't, aren't charging anything and everything is free. But in the purely the case of those of us, myself included, who are not charging anything and everything is free, there isn't a race to the bottom. We care about the quality of the product, right? And so like if somebody randomly, uh, well, not randomly for them, but but randomly from my perspective, emails me and says, hey, I'm, I'm having trouble with with CBQZ doing, you know, X or Y or Z. I feel like I'm it, it's my duty to 
provide them support, right? They're not paying me a dime. Um, but I, but it's like, it's my duty as part of the ministry to provide them support. Um, I am very happy that you, that you feel that way, but I think, (laughs) I think you are the very long tail when it comes to quizzing product providers. That may be true. That, that may be very true that I am the one of the exceptions, right? Or the, or that I'm, I'm part of the long tail, but I think it shouldn't be that way. Right. I think Bible quizzing is a ministry, right? And, and I mean, don't get me wrong. I love capitalism. I really love profit. I would love everyone to have, you know, capitalistic profit. That would be a wonderful thing. Um, but like, this is a ministry. Like I'm not going to charge somebody an entrance fee to walk into a church. Sure, but I, I mean, I think the services provided aren't free either, right? Like, I don't know. Um, I think we mostly agree, um, but I have a hard time saying this amount of money is okay, but this amount of money is not. You know, what I mean? like I, I think I come back to the I don't want to pass judgment on the the product or the quality per se, but I think it the product and the quality and the price tells me a lot about the person. Yeah, and 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 in that I totally agree, right? Like I wouldn't, I I'm not passing judgment i'm simply taking umbrage with the truly exceptionally bad examples right um you know we don't see a race to the bottom well maybe we do see a race to the bottom in the long tail of churches but i I don't know that we that there is necessarily a race to the bottom in churches because we don't charge an entrance fee to go to church right um, we, we see it as, as a higher calling and, and a ministry. And so if somebody doesn't see producing quiz software or data or, or, or hardware or whatever as a ministry, that makes me kind of sad and I'm not necessarily passing judgment, but it definitely kind of tells me where their heart is. Absolutely. And also from a business perspective, the line that you take is going to influence how your customers respond to you. Like um, we've bought poor products in the past and knew that the margins were incredible, right? Um, and when they failed, we were kind of like, hey, we need this fixed. And when we got the runaround or, hey, did you cause this? Or there was one case of um, the software worked on Windows only, and it was via software that you would upgrade the firmware of hardware. Um, and to run Windows, because I'm a Mac OS user, I had used bootcamp to install a windows partition on my machine so i wasn't emulating windows i was running windows and i i was booted into that partition running windows when i upgraded the firmware and that bricked our usb interface and then we were told that that was not um, a supported upgrade path for the firmware and like through all this we were just like you're selling a $75 product that costs you $3 in parts and, you know, a small amount in labor and then giving us a hard time because we used Windows to upgrade it, but not on the hardware you intend. You know, it just was like, we're willing to be strong about this and say like, hey, this is a bad product and this is bad service. I mean, contrast that with like now we've bought consoles and pads from QuizTime and I don't know if they failed once in three years, four years now. And so, like, yeah. if we had a failure of a pad, it would be a much different communication, right? It'd be like, hey, this failed. We try to treat all of our equipment really well and not coil things tightly. Is there something you can do for us? Or do we just kind of have to eat it and buy a new string? You know what I mean? Like, you kind of set yourself up for a certain kind of communication. But, like, the product's been rock solid thus far. So, like, 
we don't feel this need to be strong and like, oh, it's a bad product and you're going to provide us bad service. We're like, we're expecting good service. It's been a good product. We've been very happy with it, <laughs> you know? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I love quiz time. I, I, I mean, we've had one or two pads go bad over those three years of rather significant, you know, uh, quiz use. Uh, but the overall systems are just rock solid. They just always work. Like, like I, I've, I've gone from dreading quiz room setup to not thinking about quiz room setup. Like it's, it's been night and day different. And it's like, I, yeah. So like if anybody listening who wants to buy quiz physical equipment, look at quiz time, I, uh, Scott and I hard, hard endorse them. How's that? Oh yeah. And like, there are no frills, right? Like, I don't know if the design of them has changed in years, but that's better because they don't yes. fail, right? They are reliable. They just yeah. work and you don't need, you don't need quiz consoles to like look beautiful, like Apple made them or some designer. You just want them to work and you never have to worry about them. And that's how they are. Yeah. So like at internationals, what, back in Florida's year, year and a month ago or something, they had these consoles that uh, I, I really hope I'm not embarrassing anybody, but they were probably the ugliest quizzing equipment consoles I have ever seen in my life. I've never seen that particular manufacturer, that maker model of quiz equipment. And they were, they were big, they were cumbersome, they were ugly, but they worked. Like they worked without any snafus. Like I don't, I can't remember a single problem that I had with the equipment that wasn't like, you know, me flipping a button the wrong way or something, right? Like like there, there may have been user induced errors, but like the equipment was rock solid, reliable. And it's like, to me, that's what matters. Yeah. I, I don't know if those, those, um, famous red boxes that are giant, um, quiz consoles are made, were made by quiz time or not. I have a feeling that they were. But, like, they're working decades and decades later. Yes. And it's, like, amazing, you know? And it just speaks to the quality of the product. And Absolutely. I don't I, I don't know if those old, old red boxes are quiz time or not, but whoever made them, they don't fail, and they're amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, maybe the pads over time will wear down and you have to replace some wires or something. But, yeah, the consoles, they, they never break. They just always work. Like, you plug them in and they go... All right. Well, we, we, we should keep going a little bit because <laughs> otherwise we're going to have a part four. Um, okay. So touch on this one really briefly, but this is something I've noticed. I don't know, Scott, if you've noticed this or not. Uh, so chime in here, but I'm going to put this under the umbrella of quizzing prejudice. Um, I, I feel like there is sometimes some prejudice in quizzing when it comes to folks moving or transitioning into leadership after they've been a quizzer or, or, or let's just say, and, and I'm already sort of letting the cat out of the bag here. The difference being, if you didn't qualify, and this is sort of how I define prejudice, quizzing prejudice. If you didn't qualify for internationals as a quizzer, then you are somehow not as qualified to be in a position of leadership as an adult. That's sort of the nature of quizzing prejudice, that there's some sort of connection between qualifying for internationals or at least being in the top, you know, five or ten of your district uh, before you can really be considered to be eligible for leadership within your district as an adult. And I, I take umbrage with this for a couple of reasons on a just a personal level. Um you know, not everyone becomes a Christian before the, you know, aging out of eligibility in quizzing. I didn't become a Christian until my junior year of college. So I was never eligible 
to participate in quizzing. And in fact, let's see, so Thursday, Friday, Saturday, so four, three or four days after becoming a Christian, I was actually coaching a Bible quiz uh, practice. Um, not as head coach, I was assisting. Um, but like, you know, I got into quizzing as early as I could. I super pinky promise. But I just, I never had the opportunity to quiz as a quizzer because I wasn't a Christian. And so I, you know, encountered some prejudice saying like, well, you know, we'll give you certain, you know, jobs and duties in the district, but, you know, we're going to keep you away from certain other leadership positions. And that, that always kind of bugged me. And I wanted to kind of throw out there that, that quizzer skill is not a direct proxy for quiz master or answer judge skill. And it's certainly not a proxy for administrative uh, capability. Now you can make the argument that quizzer skill is a a proxy, a poor proxy, but still a proxy for certain quizzing knowledge. And that quizzing knowledge and quizzing experience is very helpful to be a better quiz master and a better answer judge. And I totally buy that argument, right? Like, like being a quizzer helps you understand how to be a better quiz master, but it is not a proxy for quiz mastery in as a, as an overall skill and certainly not a proxy for administrative capacity. And so this, you know, quizzing prejudice, which is not profound, but it does exist at, at various different levels, it tends to keep the program from, I think, expanding and growing by leveraging the best talent from the best people at the best times. So I don't know, Scott, have you encountered this? What do you think about this one? Um, I don't know how much I've encountered it. Um, I think I am guilty of it to a degree but maybe not to the degree that you would qualify as prejudice, right? But I think I would, um, I definitely treat um, quizzing history and prowess as a proxy of sorts, right? Um, I think take some super large companies like, I don't know, McKinsey Consulting or Google or something who get thousands upon hundreds of thousands of applications in the course of a month or a year, and they kind of need something to use as a proxy just because they literally can't manually inspect every application. And so a lot of these companies use, do you have a bachelor's degree as a proxy? And is this a good proxy for every single person? Not at all, right? And the the idea that you that someone requires a bachelor's degree to be a good employee is being quickly broken down, which is awesome. But at the same time, for a company that large, they kind of need to utilize some sort of proxy to filter applicants. And you can probably argue whether or not the, the specific ones that they choose are good or not, but almost out of necessity, they have to choose something. Now, in the quizzing world, there is nothing like that sort of application deluge that you need to use something as a proxy. But all things being equal, I would side towards someone that has Great West or International's experience or quizzed really well the district because it is an indication that they understand um, quizzing concepts at some level, right? I at least know that they do. Where for someone who didn't score well, um, I don't know that they don't understand it, but I also don't know for sure that they do, right? Yeah, totally. Right. I think I think the thing, though, is in quizzing, we it's not like we have this deluge of volunteers. We have a very limited number of volunteers. And to then further limit it to say, well, because you didn't qualify for internationals, I don't really trust you to quiz master. 
uh, or I certainly don't, you know, trust you to Quizmaster in room one, right? That just seems kind of cheeseball to me. Like, I think there there's a lot of folks who can potentially be better Quizmasters than somebody who qualified for internationals. And granted, you know, this is this is like the Venn diagram, right? There, we're talking about the fringe cases. This is not a 100%. And I wouldn't even say fringe. Um, I can't do the math in my head, but I, I sort of feel like there's a, you know, 20, 20 to 40% in a, you know, scientific study I just made up in my head of people that are being disqualified from positions of, a, you know, officialdom or, you know, administrative leadership or something just because of their sort of quizzing pedigree, their history, you know, uh, what teams they were on or not on at all, you know, that sort of thing. And I think it hurts quizzing uh, to to have it that way. No, I absolutely agree that whether or not you've had internationals experience or quizzing prowess shouldn't be like any um, stop, do not pass, go, like at all. Um, like, I guess I don't want to seem defensive by using my own personal examples, but I will use my own personal examples. Like, um, within PNW, we had to select our great West head coaches and officials. And if I had a ton of applications or, or interested people, there wasn't really an application, um, somewhere down the list of criteria, maybe sixth or seventh would be, have you been to internationals as a quizzer? But it was far behind things like, do you have a child going to great West? Um, do you have someone from your church going to Great West? Have you coached before a Great West? Um, and a lot of other criteria. But I think at some point, it might be a useful proxy. And I know for getting new officials, I would always just have an open invitation. Like, hey, if you're interested in being an official, please like let me know. We're willing to teach and just want interested and passionate people. Um, but if I didn't get tons and tons of interest, the people that I would reach out to first would be the ones that had excelled score-wise, right? Yeah, sure. And I think that's the that's the sort of the 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 not deceptive, but the the encroaching fingers of the prejudice that I'm talking about. Right. It's more that, you know, there I there are people out there who would make ridiculously good coaches and really great answer judges and really great quiz masters and scorekeepers and so forth who don't volunteer because they feel like there isn't an opportunity and there 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 isn't an outreach to them. And so I want to take a. I want to take a very proactive approach and say, like, I want to try to reach out and encourage as many people to volunteer as possible. And then certainly, you know, if there's, you know, five people who are volunteering to be internationals head coaches and I'm looking at the list and I'm saying, well, okay, yeah, given this list, I probably want to err on the side of somebody who has more experience rather than less experience. But I'm going to try to find those folks who have less experience or no experience and try to find ways of plugging them in to say like, well, don't be the head coach this time, but be assistant coach, right? Or, okay, maybe don't be a quiz master in a room, but be an answer judge and then do fill in quiz mastery. And then I can observe, take data and then say, oh, wow, there I've discovered somebody with some, you know, hidden talent or rather I shouldn't take the credit. Rather, they have become obvious to me as somebody who has hidden talent. Therefore, I need to try to find more and more ways of, you know, raising them up into, you know, uh, larger and larger roles like like that's 
happened in, in PNW where, you know, last couple of years we've discovered folks who you wouldn't necessarily have, you know, you would have thought, well, they would have made a, an okay official. And it turns out they don't make an okay official. They make an, a, an amazingly good official. And we only discovered that because we gave them an, an opportunity. So like, I think the answer to prejudice is really like, try to find as much opportunity as possible and, you know, judge people as individuals rather than, you know, the sum of their, their histories. Sure. So here's, tell me what you think of this. I think I would actually be using kind of quizzing scoring history, not as a proxy of quizzing ability per se, or a quizzing knowledge, but as a proxy for quizzing passion, um, which is arguably a more um, relevant um, attribute for someone to be a very good official is to just have the interest level be very high. Because I think you would agree, like among officials that have excelled as officials, but maybe weren't the top, top quizzers, they have a lot of interest in Bible quizzing and passion for Bible quizzing and being a good official, right? Oh, yeah, completely agree. But I would disagree that their scoring is a proxy for passion. Do you think it is a poor proxy altogether? No, I don't think. I mean, there, there's, there's some correlation, right? Like somebody who, who memorizes a lot, who puts a lot of time and effort into uh, quizzing as a quizzer is going to, in general, do better in the competition. And so, in general, you will probably see a somewhat correlatory effect. That's a word. I just made it up, I promise. Between, you know, those at the upper level and passion for quizzing. But I think it's a poor proxy overall because it filters people who could be black swans. Absolutely. So the question is, it seems like you are... You would agree that for people that didn't score awesome in quizzing over their career, there might be a larger barrier to entry for them, either um, perceived or actual, um, that might require different actions by those running a district to, to reduce um, those barriers. Yes, I think it requires I, – I think there is a natural prejudice against such folk, and I think those running a district in terms of – and it's really not even so much run, people running a district. It's everybody within the district who has the opportunity to provide opportunities for everybody uh, or for people in different things. So like, you know, a coach – at a church providing an opportunity for somebody to be a coach of a team, right? Or to help out coaching or whatever it happens to be, right? Uh, volunteers to either chaperone or officiate or coach at Great West or officials at district meets. So, I mean, there's all kinds of different strata of people who are kind of making these gateway decisions. And I would be much more in favor of like recognizing, yeah, we do have some prejudice, Let's try to find as many opportunities as we can. And certainly, you know, if somebody is comes forward and says, yeah, I really want to be an actor and they can't act, you don't want to, you know, cast them in a, you know, a major lead of a motion picture. Similarly, somebody comes forward and says, I really want to be a quiz master, but they haven't had, they, they've demonstrated that they're maybe not ready for prime time. Then you like, you say like, yeah, I don't think you're ready for prime time. How about you help out in this other capacity? But by and large, most people become ready when they are presented with the opportunity. Sure. Yeah. And I, I totally agree that um, those running a district should make it hard for an individual to self-select themselves out of a role, right? They should yes. yeah, yeah. 
make it possible for people to put themselves forward and be willing to teach, right? Because I don't think the assumption of anyone is that the first time you try to do something, you're the best at it or, you know, like um, that shouldn't be your expected standard. And so, yeah, I mean, I think past years are a great example of um, we want to be able to teach and find quizzers that did not go to internationals that will make awesome officials because they are out there and it is not a rarity. Right. But not just quizzers, right? Like, you know, parents or family members or a random person who knows somebody who knows somebody and, you know, shows up for a meet and, and they're kind of like, wow, this quizzing thing is amazing. How can I help? Uh, I don't want to exclude that person because that person could ultimately be uh, an amazing contributor to, you know, quizzingdom. And I, I just don't want to, I don't want to exclude that for, you know, any reason other than they're just not able to do the job for whatever reason. All right, so let's let's move on here. We're a little over time, but maybe we can get this done all in part three. So let's talk about internationals meet uh, leadership. And Scott, you have some uh, thoughts on this one, right? Um, I've probably got a, a million. I think you're bold starting it at this time of the podcast. But, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. Um, but I guess our first level, our first bullet point of umbrage is changing any role within two months of internationals, let alone at internationals. Um, it seems like every year at internationals, you show up to the coaches and officials meeting, um, which is just whoever happens to be there in those roles, and talk about rule stuff, some of which will be implemented for the following day. And it blows my mind every single time. Like, this is the culmination of the competition um, of the entire year of CMA Bible Quizzing. And you're going to say, like, we're going to change something, like, now that maybe not everyone has prepared for? It, it blew my mind every time. Like, there was one year, I, I can't, it was something about key verses, but I don't remember what it was. And I could just see there was a smaller district. And, like, on their coach's face, they were like, we've never prepared for this. <laughs> And I, like it didn't affect me at all because I think it was the way that PNMU did it. I, I don't remember the specifics, unfortunately. But I was just like um, – I felt compelled to say something and I didn't have to because Tim Daigle said something. But it was just like why are we changing this now? You know, <laughs> Like I, I'm blown away. Like there should be a, a freeze on any rule changes for internationals and it should be at least two months prior if not the calendar year. You know, like uh, Yeah, I would, I would go further than that. I yeah. would say the season. I would say like 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 change rules over like cha vote on rules changes at IBQ fine or implement rules changes after IBQ and before the fall. So where when when is that? I don't know. Maybe before September. Maybe before October. But like once you start the quizzing season, the rules need to be locked in. Like like it, districts can do their own thing, right? Districts can you know set up whatever rules they want for their district. And, and that's fine. But like the idea is internationals is the end point for the season, right? Now, granted, the ministry happens at the district level and I, I'm, I never want it to be, you know, inferred that what I'm saying is, you know, internationals is somehow more important than the district. I don't believe it is. I think that the, the internationals exists to serve the districts, not the other way around. But ultimately, dis, uh, internationals is the sort of the capstone. It is the finale of the season. And you've got people who are preparing. And these quizzers, 
I mean, especially the quizzers that are qualifying at the upper levels of internationals, they're expending, they're investing an enormous amount of effort and time and energy and focus into preparing. And then to, you know, show up and say, like, we're going to change out some of the rules by which we're going to actually run this competition the day before the competition happens is just insane. I don't understand. There's, there's really no reason why that should be like really no reason. Right. Um, there's nothing broken. The fact that different districts do things differently within those districts is fine. And it doesn't mean that internationals then gets a group together and says, okay, let's decide now the the night before competition begins, how we're going to merge the different styles that you've been doing over the calendar or, or over the season, right? Uh, to get to this point. That's just totally insane to me. I don't, I don't understand it. I experienced that too. And I was equally blown away. My umbrage level for this is like a six or a seven. And the only reason it's not higher is because I think the people who are doing this are doing this because it's been done this way for a while now. And, and we're just sort of in a pattern of doing it, but we need to just say, no, this is not okay. This is, this is silly. There is no good reason to do this. There are many good reasons not to do this and it should just stop. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you could encounter some random rule that's currently being exploited wildly and you can change it up until internationals, but it would require like unanimous vote from the districts or unanimous ascension, something like that, so that everyone knows, like, I can say no if this negatively affects me. Um, but in general, I just don't know why you're changing it. Like, maybe someone thinks that this is the time that the most people involved in quizzing are together in person, um, and we have an opportunity to talk about it. But, like, that time that I referenced, um, a rule changed the day before and Tim Daigle spoke up. I mean, it was just met with like, oh, yeah, we're not reconsidering this at all from um, the quizzing leadership running the meeting, you know? So it's like, oh, yeah, this isn't this isn't a discussion. This is just a rule change that we are making unilaterally the day before the competition starts. And I was just like, it's like hostile to the competition. You're actively harming quizzers. Yeah, and that's crazy. And, and in my experience, it was not like that. It was it was much more a let's have a discussion. It was very open. And I mean, a much better situation. It was an open discussion around how will we decide to implement this rule change? Does everyone agree that this is okay to change? I think there were some people who weren't comfortable with it, but the vast majority of people were comfortable with it. And thus the change was implemented. But even then I was like, I just, I don't see there is nothing that is inherently broken with rules that needs to be changed then. I think there are many things that are inherently broken with rules that need to be changed. And we've, you know, talked about some of them <laughs> at great length and others at short length. And, and those do need to be changed. But like, if I were to show up at internationals and somebody were to say, Hey, Griffin, all those things that you took umbrage with, we're going to change them for tomorrow. I would be like, no, 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 no. Absolutely not. Like, change them, absolutely change them after internationals, right? Like, like let's change the rule book after internationals and get it out to all the districts. And, you know, over the summer, they have the, you know, they have some time to think about it. Maybe even 
you know, lag it by a full season. Say like, here are the rules that we're going to change. We are not implementing for the next IBQ, but we're going to implement it for the one after that. So like, like districts can decide when they want to implement it locally at the district or not, and how they want to make the adjustment. That's all fine. There is no reason to rush these changes into play. Sure. On one hand, there's no reason to rush the changes into play, but I generally find that in quizzing any sort of lock-in period feels unnecessary you know like oh we need two years to trial this i don't know i kind of feel like after doing it for two meets every district kind of knows how they feel about something but no i i agree i agree i'm talking about more the transitional effects i'm not saying like we're gonna try this idea and then see if it works i agree like after even one meet you probably have a pretty good idea and maybe use the second meet as just sort of a you know, a test of the first meet or something, a, a control of the first meet or something like that. I totally agree. I'm really talking about more like we're going to change how we're going to do, you know, type distributions or something like, like that fairly wildly. And it has some impact into the districts and they can't change immediately. And so you, you've got quizzers who've been studying one way, even though they know internationals is going to be dis, uh, different. They've been studying one way at the district and then they have to make a change. And I would generally be against that because it sort of deflates the work that they've been involved in. But um, And I'm not advocating that there be a lock-in period either, but rather that like there is no reason to make last-minute changes there is every reason to delay those, to, to communicate those changes and delay their implementation until the following IBQ. Absolutely. And thinking about the various Great West meets that have happened, um, we kind of all, like three districts, PNW, Canadian Midwest, and Western Canada, showed up um, knowing that we would be discussing rules to be implemented at the meet. But we also, all three of us knew like, hey, if one of us was like, this, is a, this would be a big change to our quizzers and we don't want to do it, then we weren't going to do it. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't this attitude of, well, these things are happening, you know, which has definitely happened in internationals where it's like this rule is just happening and it doesn't matter if you don't like it, um, which I think is unfortunate. Yeah, I totally agree. All right. So another one with which I probably take even higher umbrage than the last one. And I, I mean, the last one, I probably take some high levels of umbrage, but I, I think I said like a six or a seven because I think it's unintentional or, or it's a not an unintentional. It's a inherited tradition at this point and i and so my unbridged level goes lower but we need to break the tradition this one it just makes even less sense to me and that is spectator fees at internationals so what what's that all about i don't know but in like spectators are charged a fee to observe internationals and these are spectators not being provided lodging and this is not a cost for meals it is just to spectate and I have long wanted to know what were the components of the fees internationals for participants, right? Quizzers and coaches who are being housed and are being provided meals. Um, and we're going to get to that at a later time, probably a later podcast. Um, but those were hard enough to get, um, if at all. But spectator fees also is just like no services are being provided. And yet it, this looks like a pure money grab, right? Which is going to raise my spidey sense. I'm like, hey, if you're just going for a pure money grab from people wanting to observe Bible quizzing, why? And I'm going to ask you about it. And I, th there were a few responses. One, which was, um, this is to ensure that we know who is observing internationals um, under some guise of safety, but it's not like no one is prevented from just walking into a building, right? There's no there's no security at 
Crown or Ambrose or Summit Grove or like literally or um, um, what's the Reading Simpson or like any venue that we've been to. It's not like we're preventing strangers from coming in. So it's like there's no security aspect to it. But then there was another time that we asked and were misdirected to the terminal illness of someone on the leadership team. Like, please join me in prayer for this person. And it was like, we're asking you why you're charging spectator fees to ensure that it's not a pure money grab and you're just misdirecting us. And it's like, oh, so you don't want us to ask about this, right? Because it probably is just a pure money grab. And it just seems very hostile to the entire mission of quizzing, right? People that want to observe people participating are being charged money for it. And I can't think of anything more against the mission of quizzing. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, like, and for me, my umbrage level with this one is like a nine, possibly a 10. I mean, I think it's a nine. And then because of the response that you got, it becomes a 10. Uh, it's like, well, if you care about security, then have registration, right? Like if you're a spectator, sign in at the registration table that you're a spectator and get a visitor badge or a spectator badge or something. And there's no reason to charge a dime for that, right? Like, like I don't understand. Like, why, why are we setting up barriers for people to participate in quizzing? Why are we setting up barriers for people to spectate in quizzing? That just, yeah, it, it, to your point, I think it's completely counter the mission of, of quizzing entirely. So related to that, talk about low standards at internationals. Like, so... You know, this this includes things like poor location, poor food, poor officials, poor program. Um, it can be a lot of different things. I mean, certainly there are things that are oftentimes beyond the control of meat leadership, right? So like you are you are limited financially, you are limited in what you can provide. You can't provide a four course, you know, a Michelin star meal, you know, that kind of thing that there's certain constraints that you have with officials, you know, some, you have to pay to have the officials show up generally speaking, unless the official is going to volunteer. I mean, not the, that the officials get paid, but their expenses are paid like their airfare or their hotel or something like that. Um, unless the official is willing to volunteer their, their, their costs or something like that. And so sometimes you're limited by, you know, maybe you can't get the best officials because there's just they're they're not available for whatever reason so there are some limits there but beyond the limits sometimes there are low standards that show up that seem sort of questionable beyond those explanations talk a little bit about your experience there with that um yeah so i mean i think your caveats are appropriate because um well your caveats are appropriate but they also bring to light other things, right? Like we don't know the financial setup. So we don't know like, oh, it's crazy onerous in the budget to pay for officials um, transportation to internationals. So we just kind of have to rely on on the most local people or at least give priority to the most local people. I don't know that that's the case per se because I don't know how the fees work in internationals, right? I don't know what any site is charging, life impact ministries to put on the meat. I don't know... Um, if they make a profit and if they do what it is, I don't know any of that stuff, right? Um, but I would imagine um, that it is advantageous to have internationals that you don't have to pay for plane flights for and things like that. And so because of that, I don't want to hammer too hard on internationals, but I definitely, like, over the years, there are very substandard officials in internationals. And I think it just, it sucks for the quizzers. They've worked really hard and then they get someone that is going to have an inconsistent um, pacing and 
uh, stopping cadence or not know the rules or both. You know, it's like, can't we at least have this as a minimum? <laughs> um, I think that sucks. I think that those three years that, and I think in a five-year period that internationals was at Summit Grove Bible Camp that everyone complained about the outside quiz room on a slant in a tent in 95 degree weather and humidity um, with awful food that the Life Impact Ministries chair is on the board of the camp for. It's like, this smells bad, like all of this and not just the food, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Like, why are we, why are we doing this? Um, Just those things, like no one is provided any information about how a site is picked or you know so it's like is there a vetting process that we picked summit grove the first time and then when everyone hated it that we went back you're like i don't understand um we keep going back to crown college but i imagine that's because people really enjoy the venue it's got good food and it's got good quizzing rooms right like there's no reason not to go back um and so um so that's locations and food and officials oh and then like the program like I understand that if you go to a CMA um, college or university as your venue, you probably are agreeing to some sort of recruitment pitch by um, those at the college or university, right? And I think that's that's par for the course, whether you're going to Tacoa Falls before they started charging for every move desk or Simpson before they um, couldn't allow use of any sports facilities or currently Crown. I don't know if Crown does a, um, a pitch for their college, but I think that's appropriate, right? Um, I'm totally fine with that. But like, um, was it a recent year that it was at life and it just seemed like this, you have to attend life and we're kind of combining the two. It, it seemed like a weird smashing together of priorities and maybe we just want to pump the attendance numbers for life, even though these are different things. And I don't know, like the program can sometimes fall flat. I'm probably not the best person to talk about the program because I think internationals is about um, the culmination of the competition and not any sort of program each day, be it devotional or otherwise. Um, but I don't know, just all those things, like there are just various things that don't seem like any sort of a priority, like the actual quizzing aspect or the quality of quizzing rooms or the food um, just seem like an afterthought. There was one year when um, internationals was held at crown and there are a limited number of rooms that have air conditioning, and it just so happened that the district that got those rooms was the district that had won two-thirds or three-quarters of the previous years at internationals. And it's like, well, I'm not going to assume that this was just granted because you have extra pull or have done better or anything, but, like, I don't know. Like, it just seems like I never had an opportunity to get the air-conditioned room. Um, so I'm going to assume worse unless you tell me otherwise. And just little things like that that maybe don't seem like a big deal to people. But um, I don't know. Inequality, I think, sucks, um, whether it's thought about consciously or just happens subconsciously. You know, the the common theme, you know, taking a step back, the common theme that, that we've got here with a lot of these umbrage things that we're talking about is, is lack of transparency, right? It, lack of transparency into decisions, discussions, uh, lack of transparency into financial, lack of transparency into, you know, motivations or conflicts of interest, right? It kind of goes back to the the conflict of interest thing that we were talking about. Like, I don't really mind if there's a conflict of interest as long as you're transparent about it, right? And you say, yeah, here's a conflict of interest. Here's what we're going to do about it. If anything, 
um, and just be open about it. And it, and it's probably not a big deal, but the, the non-transparency stuff, the, the opaqueness, the, like the deliberate opaqueness, I think is the biggest thing. Like when somebody, you know, if you're inadvertently opaque, that's one thing. But then if somebody asks you for some transparency and then you respond with deflection, that, like you said, it raises your spidey sense. Like, yeah, the same thing with me. Like, uh, my ears perk up. I, I, I'm like, wait a minute, why aren't you just telling me the answer? That makes me feel like you're trying to hide something, you know? And if there was a mistake that was made, just own it. You know, people make mistakes. It's like, okay, yeah, you're asking about something where so-and-so made a mistake. Probably not the best decision. We shouldn't do that again. Okay, cool. I can, I can totally accept that. I can totally live with that. You know, we all make mistakes and, you know, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. But when somebody's all like, yeah, let's not talk about that. I'm like, well, why aren't we talking about it? Right. It, it, it invites more questions and invites more problems. Absolutely. I don't know how much you want to get into this because it is under a bullet point under international quizzing leadership, which is our, our closing topic. Well, let's, let's, let's jump in here. I want to, I, I loathe a part four. So let's, let's, I mean, I did talk a little bit about, you know, lack of transparency. So why don't we, why don't we talk about that bullet point and then kind of jump around to some of the other ones? Yeah. So it was around 2013. I think this was the second or third time we were at Summit Grove and um, first time that I'd been there, but I'd heard it was awful, just awful as a venue. So I started asking questions to Life Impact Ministries who puts on internationals. I said, Hey, like, why are we back here? Like, you know, we're being charged whatever it was, 350, 425, like, can you tell me what your costs are? And it was probably a 20 to 30 email chain over the course of months over the summer where I wasn't provided any answers. And then I finally had an in-person meeting with Jerry at internationals where I was provided, provided total costs and, um, total, total revenue for like just the top line numbers for internationals for the past couple years. So it was like no disclosure of what things actually cost, like what they're actually being charged by Summit Grove, for example, which Jerry was on the board of. And I just like, I was like, so you gave me the runaround for months and then provide me the like most limited information you can. Like you are absolutely trying to hide stuff. And this is after I ask about spectator fees and given no answer. So it's like this, this feels like a money grab, you know? And I, I was given no reason to believe otherwise. And so it's like, of course I'm going to have great distrust. And then later when the leadership of Life Impact Ministries changed over, when Jerry retired, um, there was new leadership. And at a meeting, I was like, hey, we've had zero financial transparency for years. And that's just what I know about. And so my inclination is to believe that something untoward is happening. Um, and unless I have evidence to the otherwise, which would involve just disclosure of what internationals cost you to put it on, you know? And like, cause I don't think you should make zero money from it. Like you're providing a service, but I also want to make sure that your profit margin isn't 80% or like who knows what. Right. Um, and just got incredible pushback from the new, um, leader of life impact, impact ministries. And it was just like, why are you so strong about this? It was just like, it was part of his sermon the next day, which was, um, I'm not going to provide my, uh, the only question I'm not going to answer is what my salary is, which I was asked yesterday. It's just like a dig at me, you know, during a, a sermon the next day. And it's just like blowing my mind. <laughs> like um, this is a, the base level of information. It doesn't matter what your, your specific salary is, but like does internationals make you a ton of money or does it not? Like that's a like question. And if it doesn't, 
then I think you'd be pretty willing to tell me that, which makes me think you're hiding something. And so like just over and over, I was just like, it looks like you don't care about the internationals meet or the quizzers that participate. It's just like an annoyance for you to put on and hopefully you can make some money at it. And I just, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. There was, there was one year where um, it was at crown and just like any faraway quiz meet that we're flying to, I made sure to email Life and Back Ministries and say like, hey, in the rooms, do are there pillows provided? Are there blankets provided? Are there towels provided? Just because those are essentials that are also bulky. So if they're not being provided, which is fine, um, we need to know to bring them. And I was told what was provided. And I think it was blankets. So not pillows and not towels. So we made sure to pack pillows, paid for a check bag um, and brought towels. And then we show up and there are no blankets at all. So I go to Life Impact Ministries. And I'm like, hey, I have these emails here where I said, are there blankets being provided? And you said yes. And then they're not. What can you do for me? And it was kind of like, eh, figure it out. And I was just like, uh, like I literally asked about this. And you lied or was were just incompetent and then don't care about it now? Like I, like I was blown away. Like these weren't things that I was expecting to be provided. I just wanted to know, like, are you or are you not? You know, and I just example after example was was the CMA and Life Impact Ministries not caring about internationals and just like we'll put it on begrudgingly, make some money and do the, the bare minimum. Yeah. Well, and then there is, you know, certainly let's kind of broaden this out of just Life Impact Ministries. Let's talk about CMA in general, right? So one of my umbrage things about, you know, wide, wider, larger leadership in general is sort of this feeling of apathy. And you talked about it, you know, in terms of Life Impact Ministries, but in terms of CMA, and I, I really want to be specific here. I want to s- separate out the difference between, say, Canadian CMA and US CMA, because my understanding um, is that Canadian CMA in terms of quizzing is not apathetic, uh, that they're actually fairly reasonably supportive of quizzing. But CMA leadership in the US uh, is is not particularly uh, supportive. Uh, And I, you know, certainly every district is going to be different, right? Um, Certain districts may have leadership that's more supportive, others that are not. But in my personal experience, I have been met with nothing but immense apathy when it comes to quizzing. And it's like, okay, fine. You like, I don't even really, I kind of have some umbrage about, you know, CMA apathy for quizzing because it is a CMA ministry. But honestly, if CMA is apathetic about it, okay, fine. I, I, I can live with that. I can move on. Then give up controlling it. Right. If you either either be apathetic and give up control or maintain control and stop being apathetic, but you don't get to pick both. Yeah. And to be clear, I've, I, I don't think I have any firsthand um, knowledge of um, the Canadian CMA, but things that I've been told is that the Canadian CMA is supportive of Bible quizzing. And if you will look at the um, high quality of literally every Canadian district that participates, um, I would assume that that's the case, right? That they have some level of support from their denomination. And that is something that just we don't have in the U.S., right? Like it was the 2014 um, internationals where we have our officials meetings and um, the CMA vice president of church ministries came and talked and said very nice things about quizzing and then does nothing, right? So it's like your paid lip service, 
because enough people complained that you're apathetic and then you just continue being apathetic, right? Because no one has any avenue to do anything. And Bible quizzing is just a, a gnat to USCMA, you know? Um, and, you know, I talked about Jerry Mapstone and Scott Wakeley and how they just won't disclose anything. And we're concerned about financial impropriety to our own district, right? And was listened to and done nothing. And when I documented um, communications with um, Life and Back Ministries on our website, I was told to take it down by our district, right? So it's it's a fear of truth. Um, the, and I don't know what the fear is, right? Unless there is some sort of impropriety. Like I go out of my way to say like, say what happened and to not, and to like be clear when I'm putting forth opinion, right? Like it's my opinion that there is financial impropriety. I don't know that for sure. But like when I ask you for all this information and provided like the bare minimum, that's what I'm going to assume, right? But that's the line between what I know and what's opinion. Um, but apparently even just stating like what I know and what communications I've had is dangerous to the USCMA for some reason. Um, and that's, that's scary to me, right? Like you don't care and you don't like information being shared. You know, it just speaks to like that you don't want to be involved and are not invested in Bible quizzing. Right. Well, and, and, and to reiterate a point that we've talked about before, if mistakes were made, that's fine. Every we're human. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody mistakes happen every day, every week, every month, every year. Like it, it, it happens, right? Just be transparent about the mistakes, right? You say like, yeah, um, we don't have the financial data to share with you because we didn't do a particularly good job of keeping that financial data. Like that data no just doesn't exist. And it looks bad that we don't have that financial data to share with you. Okay, fine. If that's the case, just tell us, right? Just be transparent, own it, say, you know, sorry, we'll try to do better next time. Um, and that's totally completely reasonable, right? Um, what's not reasonable is the opaqueness, the forced opaqueness, and then matching that with the sustained apathy for the program, right? Either care or get out of the way. Absolutely. Right. And as I said before, in the absence of information, rumor fills the void. And so I'm left to like put together information as best I can, you know, and I learned from not CMA leadership, but someone within PNW quizzing who would know like that at a past internationals, I think it was 2005 at Ambrose, that the CMA lost a lot of money over the meet. Just, I don't know the means or anything like that. I don't think there was anything like untoward happening, but it's just like the costs were greater than the revenue, right? And because of that, the the um, shortfall had to be made up out of the Great Commission Fund. And it was kind of out of that year that Life and Back Ministries became their own standalone kind of ministry program where they had to make their own budget and the profit or loss was their own, right? They had their people with who are salaried um, and pair that knowledge, if that is true, with the fact that life happens every three years, which I believe is the largest revenue for Life and Back Ministries. And I can see how the financial implications of internationals being every year, but life being only every three years means that like, and you know, taking a large bath over internationals in the past, like you don't want that to happen again, but it also might be some um, recurring revenue year over year that is useful, right? I think that those realities, they're fine, right? Like someone could say that there's this big conflict of interest, but like, I don't, I don't think so. But if you can say like, oh, we're, we're not making 80% off Bible quizzing, you know, we make a 17% profit off of internationals this year. And this is what we do to make sure that the costs aren't 
out of control because I know that some districts like would either send one team or more than one team if the costs were different, right? Um, like if we had any sort of information about it, I think you very quickly are fine with things. But when you're given zero information, then um, you definitely assume worse. Um, right. And I guess that just goes back to the, like what I said before, you know, like when I was talking about generating questions, like if you're willing to provide some information, then you pretty quickly give people trust that, um, you're doing a great job. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Well, and so lastly, uh, our last umbrage item, we're finally getting to it. Yay. No part four. <laughs> um, this, this is actually going to be kind of a letdown <laughs> relative to some of the other high passion topics that we've been talking about so far, uh, in this course of things, but, and this is probably really more just me being a total, you know, parliamentary procedure nerd, but Bible quizzing at the international level does not have bylaws. We refer to a a page in the CMA rulebook. Well, I think it's like the last page in the CMA rulebook. We refer to that sometimes as our bylaws, but they're not bylaws. Real bylaws should, you know, be only changeable by a two-thirds majority vote of the assembly that represents the districts, right? A real bylaws cannot just be amended because of a simple majority vote of a governing board. Those that that's not bylaws. That that's an operating policy. Um, operating policies can be changed by a simple majority vote of a governing board, and that's totally fine. Have you know operating policies? Call them that. Change them if you want to. That's totally fine. But don't call them bylaws because they're not bylaws. And why do we have bylaws? What, what's the, what, what is the reason to have bylaws? Why not just have operating policy? Well, the reason you have bylaws is the reason why we have the U.S. Constitution. And I'm sure, you know, uh, Canada has, has, has a constitution that's equivalent, right? We have bylaws to protect the rights of the represented by the governance, right? So the governing board represents those, you know, the assembly. And the, if without bylaws, the governing board can just do whatever it wants. It has no accountability. The reason you have bylaws is to set up accountability such that the governing board can, at least in theory, be held accountable by the General Assembly. When you don't have real bylaws, it causes the General Assembly to distrust the governing board. And that's ultimately the beginning of a distrust that becomes a poison to the fulfillment of the mission. So I'm very much in favor of let's have some real bylaws. And, and uh, uh, you know, we, we've been trying to avoid names as much as possible. Um, but I'll throw out, you know, Zachary Tinker's the, the chair of the CQLT to his credit. And I give him huge uh, 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 kudo points. I don't know, plus plus points, whatever. Zachary is aware of this. He's taking this seriously. He's tr he's on a mission to put together some real bylaws for the CQLT slash, you know, international quizzing. And so this is a problem that will be resolved here pretty soon because, you know, I have a lot of, you know, uh, positive uh, thoughts about uh, Zachary and his abilities and, and what he's going to do. And, and I certainly, I believe his heart is, is absolutely in the right place for quizzing. So I have a fairly high level of umbrage that no bylaws exist, and I have a fairly high level of umbrage that we call our policies one-pager bylaws, but my umbrage level is quickly turning into zero uh, because of the work that Zachary is underway doing. 
That is awesome. I'm, I mean, I think all that we want is faith in those leading Bible quizzing and those with the most influence from the top, because there's been a lot of history of life and back ministries hindering the mission of Bible quizzing and being meddlesome in the leadership structure and removing people and forcing them to resign for undisclosed reasons, you know, and that's not something that's happened recently as, as far as we know. Um, but strong bylaws will make it clear how someone is elected to the leadership team, how, what their responsibilities are, how they can be removed, how votes work, you know, like recently, you know, I found out that if there is a vote among the six quizzing CQLT people that's tied, that it's broken by an ex officio life and back ministries member, you know, but that's not documented anywhere, but it just is a thing that apparently happens um, or, or I should rather say can happen. Um, but it's those sorts of undocumented process things that need to be documented, right? And as Griffin and I have talked about bylaws and their importance, it's not because we expect like a CQLT member to have to be removed or um, in the rule book, there's like grounds for removing a quiz master. We don't expect a quiz master at say an international's meet to have to be removed, but in the situations that that is necessary, rare as they will be, um, it is important that there is a process for it, right? It's for the protection of everyone. And that is that is like one of the, the biggest purposes of a bylaws document. It is um, for solid, rock-solid, objective process um, that can't be contested in those very sticky, important, and yet rare situations. And that's something that we need to work towards because we don't have that with those bylaws, and we certainly didn't have them in the mid-2010s. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, we've gone way over time, but we've also shared lots of high-level Umbridge things and avoided a part four. But uh, Scott, any parting thoughts before we conclude? Um, I mean, I think as you've echoed, like the overriding theme of all of this is transparency. Like we're not expecting anyone to be perfect and we are certainly not perfect. That's why we want challenges as quiz masters. Um, but we just want transparency at every single level. And that makes everything better, even if there are deficiencies. It almost um, smooths over in the best of terms deficiencies, right? It's transparency and being willing to communicate what is happening. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't say it better. Transparency, transparency, transparency. If if people are told about things, uh, and if they're not, then when they ask, they are told about those things, that makes everything work. Um, we're not asking for perfection. We're just asking for honesty. And uh, I think if we have that, the program will do much better and we will be able to achieve our mission uh, so much more effectively. All right. So with that, um, we should close. <laughs> We've gone way over time. Uh, but obviously, this is stuff that Scott and I are very passionate about um, with our various different umbrage levels and so forth. So if you have any disagreements about anything that we have talked about, either in this or previous podcast, we would very much like to hear from you. If you believe that we are wrong about any of our umbrage things or our points of view, we would like to hear from you. We would like to be corrected. You know, Paul told Timothy that he needed to correct, rebuke, and encourage, and we very much would like to be corrected, rebuked, and encouraged by you. Uh, so send us an email uh, to do that. Uh, you can send us email at IQ for Inside Quizzing, so IQ at cbqz.org, and you can also follow us on Twitter. Our account is at Inside Quizzing. And if you are so inclined, you can also chat with us in near real time 
on the Bible Quizzing Slack channel and uh, uh, get in there and join up onto Pound Inside Dash Quizzing, and uh, you'll be able to chat with Scott and I in near real time. And with that said, I want to thank everybody for listening, and thank you, Scott. Absolutely, and we've been we've expressed some really strong opinions and um, experiences over the past handful of podcasts, and we're very interested in your similarly strong opinions and experiences because we are just one people, but um, we want to know what you think because um, we want to make quizzing better for um, we want to, we want quizzing to be better because of the discussions that were had. And thank you for listening. 